from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. Secretary of the Army Christine Warmuth said on Saturday that if the U.S. ever got into a conflict with China over Taiwan, the Army expects to see a wave of cyber attacks on U.S. infrastructure. Secretary Warmuth also said that these attacks will have substantial consequences for the American public. This announcement comes after suspected Chinese hackers have recently breached several U.S. defense and technology companies. Federal News Network reports that the Navy's top cyber advisor, Chris Cleary, is seeing development in advancing the military's cyber mission force. As part of the fiscal year 2020 National Defense Authorization Act, each military service has to pick a principal advisor on all cyber issues for that service. Cleary says that there have been some setbacks in establishing the new positions, but now they are working to embrace those changes. U.S. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall announced on Saturday at the Reagan National Defense Forum that the Air Force needs to retire outdated aircraft immediately. Secretary Kendall said that this replacement and modernization effort comes because, quote, if it doesn't threaten China, why are we doing it? Under consideration for retirement include certain fighters, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance aircraft, as well as command and control aircraft. China and Russia are expanding their anti-satellite or ASAT capabilities to advance their weapon systems for outer space. Recently, Russia launched a missile destroying one of its defunct satellites. Chris Stone is Senior Fellow for Space Studies for the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Research Center. Chris, nice to see you. Thanks. So Russia recently had that successful um, anti-satellite missile launch. Mm -hmm. Did that test demonstrate capabilities that they didn't previously have? Well, they had been experimenting with various different ways of anti-satellite capabilities in orbit. Uh, recently, as of last year, they, they deployed a satellite that, that ejected another component that people consider to be a weapon system. Uh, and they used to have these types of ground-based interceptor missiles uh, testing back in the 70s and 80s. But this is the first time in a while that they've had a successful demonstration of this capability in quite a while. So there's been a lot of discussion about the debris that the explosion ca mm -hmm. caused. That, that is a big deal, though, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's important to understand that, that debris is a, is a big deal. I mean, obviously, all the news reports were talking about how the astronauts and cosmonauts on the space station had to shelter uh, because of the, the conjunction between um, that satellite debris orbit and the orbit of the space station. And a conjunction just means that they two orbits intersect and two objects might intersect and create collisions. Um, but in my opinion, the debris, there's been studies to show that debris is, is, while important and while a concern, um, is not necessarily as big of a deal in low Earth orbit as it is in other orbits, such as higher Earth orbit. Well, um, the Pentagon spokesperson, John Kirby, said this in response, quote, we would like to see norms for space so that it can be used responsibly by all spacefaring nations. Doesn't seem like a very strong statement. No, um, as I've said to some people that I talk with about this regularly is that a, a press release is not really a response, in my opinion. Um, while norms of behavior are great things to advocate for and they should be advocated for with regards to the State Department mission, when it comes to a military institution such as U.S. Space Command or the Space Force or even the broader Department of Defense, in my mind, a better response would have been 
saying that we reserve the right to defend ourselves, um, looking at deterrence and, and weapon systems, and that we plan on developing our own similar system that can defeat it, uh, deter it, or um, do something similar. But that wasn't the response. Um, in your article, you say that China has a, quote, unique view of deterrence in space. Mm -hmm. What is that? Well, typically on the Western side of thinking, our deterrence viewpoint is more passive, where we say we have a capability, we have the, the will to use it. If you attack us, we'll respond in kind or something similar. In the Chinese view of deterrence, they have what's sometimes called an attack to deter concept of thinking, whereas rather than waiting for them to be hit, if they see a, a threat manifesting itself or developing over a certain period of time or approaching their something of importance to them, they reserve the right to attack first. And in their mind, they're acting in self-defense and that's a secondary shot, whereas in our viewpoint, that would be seen as an act of aggression. So how should we respond to that, given that, you know, they're going to be our primary adversary? Well, in my opinion, I believe we should do more quickly to achieve a similar capability that we talk about. So um, as others have mentioned before, we tend to overclassify things in the space realm to our detriment, to deterrence's detriment. You can't really threaten somebody with a denial or a, a punishment type of deterrence means if you don't have one or if you don't articulate that you have one and that you're willing to use it. The Chinese and Russians both have demonstrated kinetic and non-kinetic capabilities that they're willing to use. And non-kinetic meaning like jamming, jamming, things that can be reversed. Jamming, right, things that can be reversed, jamming, sometimes tracking lasers, things of that sort. Whereas kinetic, things that hit things or, or destroy things, um, all the way up to even a nuclear detonation potential. Uh, that's not reversible, obviously. And so we need to have the ability to escalate to any of these possible capabilities. Otherwise, uh, with the Chinese and Russians having a more escalation dominance viewpoint, which means that they have a, a multi-layered attack architecture capability. So they can go from the low end to the high end based on what they feel is, is necessary to deter a country like us or one of our allies. You know, I wanted to ask you about how high up can these anti-satellite missiles go? You know, this mm -hmm. test was against low Earth orbit. Can they go to medium? Can they go to geostationary? Right, well, the, the Russians have only demonstrated low Earth orbit from the standpoint of these ground-based interceptors. The Chinese back in 2014 demonstrated that they have the ability to go out to geo, which is about 22,000 miles above the Earth as well as low Earth orbit, which is anything from about 100 kilometers, 60 miles and, or such. So any, everywhere, pretty much all of our satellites are at risk of these, these kinetic interceptors as well as other types of systems that they've already deployed. You talked about your recommendations for deterrence for the Pentagon. Are, is the Pentagon further developing its anti-satellite capabilities so that it would have a stronger deterrence or use it if, if necessary? Well, with public, public statements that they've said over the last several years, they've, they've, I remember back when um, I think Depth Secretary Shanahan used to say the phrase dominate in 28, which basically meant they were going to be working toward what they refer to as counter space options by 2028. But what concerns me is between now and that period of time is that we have this window of vulnerability that we're unable to really do a whole lot with or at the very least, we're not articulating that we have that ability and the will to use it. And to me, that just hurts deterrence, doesn't help it. So, you know, personally, I think we need to do more. And frankly, uh, I think Congress needs to do more to help because 2.5% of the defense budget is all the Space Force has been given. And you clearly can't speed anything up with 2.5% of the budget. It's just not realistic. All right, well, Chris, thanks so much. Appreciate you coming in. Thank you very much.
Coming next, AI's rapid growth has given rise to concerns about the potential problems it could create. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the federal government needs to pay attention to. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. As computing power increases, artificial intelligence has become more prominent in all aspects of daily life, in civilian federal agencies and at the Pentagon. But AI's rapid growth has given rise to concerns about the potential problems it could create. Daryl West is vice president of governance at the Brookings Institution. He's also author of the book, Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. It's co-authored by General John Allen. Daryl, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's nice to be with you. You spend the entire first chapter defining what AI is. What is it and why is it so hard to define? AI is one of those terms that, of course, everyone has heard, but very few people understand. So in our book, we define AI as automated software that can analyze data, text, or images, and then act intelligently on that. And I think the key feature and feature that distinguishes it from other kinds of software is just the ability to learn. It can take a bunch of information, either predict what someone or some entity is going to do, and then make decisions based on that. So artificial intelligence has been around for a long time. Why are we now at such a critical point for understanding the impacts of AI? I mean, you're right. AI has been around for decades, but what has changed in recent years is that AI is getting much more sophisticated, the computing power is much stronger, and it's just being deployed in virtually every area, from healthcare and education to transportation, e-commerce, and national defense. And so, as you mentioned in your opening, it's ubiquitous, it creates some opportunities, it can relieve humans from uh, dirty, boring, or dangerous jobs, but then it also is raising a lot of concerns, privacy concerns, security concerns, just the impact on human safety. Are we still in charge of the AI? Well, exactly, because what most people are concerned about is machines making decisions and humans losing control. Do you think that fear is justified? Absolutely. I mean, when you look at Hollywood movies, uh, the Terminator being the classic example, everyone fears these super intelligent robots that are going to enslave humanity and uh, take over. I actually am not worried about that. I mean, the AI has advanced, but it is nowhere near having that type of capability. And it's likely to be centuries before we even have to worry about that. Instead, what we suggest in our book is there actually are real worries right now about privacy, security, uh, the lack of transparency about how algorithms make decisions. Like, these are real issues right now, and those are the things we should be focused on and uh, not possible fears about AI taking over 200 or 300 years from now. We'll drill down a little bit on the privacy concerns. What's the issue there? I mean, the problem with AI is it can analyze an enormous amount of information and then act on that. And so that, of course, presents privacy issues. Uh, you know, there's just so much information about there, uh, out there about all of us. Uh, and so the concern is that as, say, financial institutions start to use AI to make lending decisions, that there are going to be privacy invasions or there could be questions of uh, uh, bias and discrimination that takes place. So we do need uh, much better privacy laws than what we have now. Uh, the state of California, uh, 
in Virginia have uh, passed uh, detailed uh, privacy laws, but we need a national privacy law so that as these algorithms become uh, more common, that people's basic privacy does get protected. Well, turning now, Daryl, to the defense sector, you say that AI will dramatically change the speed of war. What does that mean? I mean, what it means is war in the future is going to be different than what we remember from World War II or even the Vietnam era. There's going to be a big cyber component in the sense that it's not just going to be soldiers and tanks that are attacking us, but software is going to attack it. Attack us. You know, it may take down a critical infrastructure. And so we need to understand that having software involved in warfare is going to speed up the pace of decision making. Uh, for example, there may be a naval carrier out in the middle of the Pacific, and there could be hundreds of drones armed with weapons that attack that. Uh, boat. Uh, and so we need to figure out, uh, one, how to provide cyber protections for ourselves, and then two, to understand that war in the future is going to involve uh, drones, uh, robots, other types of autonomous weapons systems. And so that's really going to change both the character and the nature of war. You know, I wonder what kind of impact that will have on leadership for battlefield commanders and how they're trained for, for these future wars. Uh, that's a great question. And what it really means is commanders are going to need a different type of training, both physical training in terms of how to motivate uh, soldiers and how to position them uh, for maximum effect. But they also are going to need to master the digital side and understand artificial intelligence, understand machine learning, understand robotics, understand uh, drones. And so all that is going to require more technical sophistication but of course the human element still is important and so our commanders are going to need uh, both the traditional uh, skills of how to motivate people and how to position troops but then also how to deploy these digital tools and how to defend our country from uh, uh, digital onslaughts and cybersecurity risks uh, that we are going to face all right well daryl we're going to take just a quick pause here and then we're going to continue our conversation in the next segment Coming next, more of my conversation with Daryl West on the future of artificial intelligence. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're here with Daryl West, Vice President of Governance at the Brookings Institution. He's author of the book, Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. It's co-authored by General John Allen. Daryl, a lot has been made about China's advancements in AI technology. What will it mean to face an adversary that exceeds the U.S. in development and deployment of AI? I mean, you're absolutely right. China is investing billions of dollars in their artificial intelligence capabilities and have really made tremendous uh, progress over uh, the last few years. And so China's going to present uh, multiple uh, risks. Uh, they're uh, technical capabilities are improving. Uh, they have a large number of soldiers under their command, so they have the traditional uh, means of combating uh, uh, war. Uh, but then their, their technical capabilities have advanced to the point where they have hypersonic missiles uh, that can travel at the speed of sound. Uh, they have developed their drone capability and their robotic uh, capability. They're using AI to develop new types of techniques and uh, new types of uh, ways of engaging in war. So it, China's gonna present a, 
a major adversary going forward, and we really need to be focused on making sure that our own capabilities keep up with that so that we don't end up at a competitive disadvantage. You know, Daryl, I typically don't uh, quote the Russian president on this program, but I want to show you this quote by Vladimir Putin. He said this, artificial intelligence is the future, not for Russia, but for all humankind. Whoever becomes the leader in this space will become the leader, the ruler of the world. What has Russia's progress been with this technology? I mean, I hate to agree with uh, Putin on anything, but on this point, he is absolutely right. AI is the future, and it is going to define the nature of both military and economic competition in the future. Now, the good news is Russia actually does not have nearly the technical capabilities that China has. Uh, Russia has not invested to the same extent, but China and Russia are working together, uh, and so Russia is actually benefiting from the technical advances that the Chinese have uh, made. There have been uh, agreements between the two countries. They're sharing uh, technology. So from that standpoint, uh, Russia represents a real threat, not just in terms of traditional warfare, but also on the cyber side. You know, I wanted to ask you about that because Russia does use AI for, you know, so-called micro-targeting for its disinformation campaigns. And as you said, that's not conventional warfare. That's considered gray zone activity. Yeah, we have seen lots of problems with that in past elections, and we certainly are going to see that uh, going forward. Uh, Russia has gotten very sophisticated at running social media campaigns based on disinformation. Uh, we've seen that in terms of the election area, in terms of COVID vaccinations. I mean, uh, Putin has just become a master at using his former KGB training uh, to basically try and disrupt what happens in American democracy, to turn Americans against one another, to basically play to all the fears and anxieties that we have now, but put misinformation and disinformation out there designed to really inflame U.S. discourse so that our system does not function very well. So we do need to worry very much about that. There's been analysis both of uh, how Russia has done that in past elections and as we head into 2022 as well as 2024, we need to stay vigilant on that front as well. Daryl, I want to ask you about um, autonomous weapons. So these are lethal autonomous weapons systems. Some have argued that they should be banned altogether. You know, the, the it's, you know, you can't have machines deciding whether humans live or die. What do you think about that? I mean, we don't think autonomous weapons systems should be banned, but they should be subject to human control. So, for example, the U.S. military has been using drones for a number of years, but uh, the drone does not make the decision. Like, there has to be a human being that can look at the video, uh, make a decision on whether to fire or not to fire. And so what we argue is going forward as AI is getting integrated in uh, weapon systems, as autonomous uh, drones are uh, being deployed, there still has to be a human that makes that decision to either to fire or not to fire. Uh, and of course, sometimes there have been mistakes uh, made. Uh, we then can have accountability for those humans who uh, made uh, bad decisions. But we really have to keep humans in the loop because if you have these weapon systems uh, making firing decisions independently, uh, one, those systems can make uh, bad decisions based on erroneous uh, information, or two, there could be an inadvertent uh, firing that could spark a war, 
create problems between uh, countries or really uh, disrupt uh, the economies of uh, but, but I guess I guess the question here is where do you insert humans into the decision process knowing it will slow things down and that our adversaries don't have those ethical concerns? There is some risk of slowing the decision down, but we need to slow it down to the point where human judgment comes into being. And you're right that other nations may not face the same ethical dilemma in worrying about that, uh, but the United States does hold itself to a higher ethical standard. And what we need to do is design the weapon system so that the human is in the loop, but it doesn't slow down the decision-making to the point where we lose a competitive advantage. So that's what the Pentagon is working on now. Uh, they've set up an AI center specifically designed to integrate uh, technology into conventional weapon systems. So our military is uh, trying to work out those kinds of issues. You know, there are a lot of recommendations in your book, and one is to establish guiding ethical principles. Has there not been a whole-of-government attempt at establishing those principles for AI? Actually, we have made progress on uh, that front, both in terms of the defense side as well as uh, the U.S. domestic side. I think everyone now recognizes that AI is very uh, powerful. It can't just be unchecked. Like, we need to make sure ethical principles guide the development and deployment of that. And so uh, these are questions such as, you know, how to maintain privacy uh, in uh, AI, how to make sure human safety uh, is incorporated, uh, making sure that basic ethical considerations uh, get incorporated. And uh, perhaps most importantly, improving the understandability uh, and the transparency of AI so that we actually understand how it's making decisions. Kind of the worst outcome would be if AI gets deployed broadly, makes decisions, we act on uh, that information, but we don't understand how it's making those decisions and what factors are being incorporated. So we need to uh, do a much better job on that kind of issue. All right, well, Daryl, a lot more to say about this, but thanks so much for joining us and being on the program. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Hit subscribe to see all the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.